Well, rainbows have taken on a new meaning in our world these days. I don't need to explain that to you. Especially in June, we've seen rainbows all over the place, and they have a meaning to them, and a meaning that for us as um, Bible-believing Christians that, that we cannot embrace and celebrate along with the rest of the world. Because the rainbow has uh, been used uh, by activists and groups to take a meaning as far as uh, different things that we know are actually contrary to God's design for the world, contrary to God's good design for people as well. And we know that these things are actually uh, not in the best interest of people, and therefore we can't celebrate these things. Instead, we, we grieve and we look to God uh, for his help in these things. But as we look at the book of Genesis, we see in this message, we're going to see the real meaning of the rainbow world and what God appointed uh, the rainbow to signify regarding his faithfulness, uh, being the sign of the covenant that he gives to Noah, and not just to Noah, but to, it's going to say, to, to all humanity and down to us as well. So we look forward to, to looking at this and thinking through this. Uh, so Genesis 8, uh, starting with verse 20, is what we're going to be looking at. So this is right after the flood. So in Genesis 6, it had talked about how the, uh, the whole uh, humanity uh, had been so corrupted by sin that every thought of their mind, of their heart, was only evil continuously. Just this thorough corruption. And society, I'm sure, was, 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 was terrible. Can't imagine just, uh, just the, the rampant murder and just awful things that were happening. And so God gave warning, and then he brought his judgment upon the world with this cataclysmic flood uh, that wiped out um, all of humanity. Uh, that was this uh, giant... Uh, worldwide event, this cataclysm that happened upon the face of the earth. And God found Noah as a man that still had faith. I know Noah wasn't perfect, uh, but he had his faith in the Lord. And so God saved eight people. He saved Noah and he saved Noah's wife, their three sons and their wives, put them on the ark along with enough of the animals that they could repopulate uh, the world after this. And then God sent the rains. And I'm sure these rains did not come the way that sometimes we picture them, like this gentle rain and the waters just go up. Uh, but this was a violent event. And it talks about uh, the waters coming up from the, from the deep as well. And I think this changed the whole topography of the earth. Uh, not just from uh, the, the tidal waves and tsunamis and everything that would have happened, uh, but the releasing of this water and then afterwards with the, the mountains rising, the valleys sinking. I think the mountains were not the way they are today before this. Uh, we have to factor that into the equation. And you think about today when there's an earthquake uh, out in the sea, just the tsunamis that happen. I mean, imagine this happening all over the earth and what this would do uh, just to the geography everywhere. And so this was a, a violent, massive event. And Noah and his family, they're on the ark. And you look at the chronology and it's over a year that they are on the ark. And finally, the water subsided enough and they are able to get off the ark. And so now, as we're going to look through this, we're going to read it in segments here. Finishing up chapter 8, we see that the Lord promised never to destroy the world again with a flood. Let me read these verses. Then, so they get off of the ark, 
And then the first thing, notice the first thing that Noah does, and there's a lot of work to do. They got to rebuild the society, the world. They don't have homes, all this. First thing, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So let's think about these verses first. I think the first thing we need to notice, again, is just the first thing that Noah does, is he gets off and he worships God. There could be so many things. You think of his to-do list that he would have after all of this, you know, unloading the ark and just everything and rebuilding society, but he takes time. First of all, he's going to worship the Lord. It is because of God that he was saved. God that uh, worked through this, instructed him to build the ark, sealed him in this ark, uh, that brought him and his family safely through this. And so he worshiped the Lord first of all. And that is a pattern for us. It's so easy for us to put off worshiping the Lord until after we get through our to-do list or to certain t- points in time. But if the Lord is to be our number one, if he, following the first commandment, is to be the number one in our hearts and lives, worshiping God should be what we do first all the time. And whether it means you know, making time to, to gather together and worship like this or just thanking God in our hearts all the time, That needs to be first and foremost in our hearts and our lives. So like Noah, we should worship God before anything else. If he really is number one in our lives, this is what we want to seek to do. This is what we were created for, finding our our, our joy, finding our treasure in God. Uh, He gets the glory, we get the joy. This is what we're designed for. And when we put the Lord and his worship first in our hearts and lives, in ours and in our families, This makes everything pointed in the right direction, and other things will follow from that. We say also, looking at verse 22, that that God promised never to destroy the world again, and specifically never to destroy it again with a a flood. Because we're going to see later on in chapter 9, he specifies that that he's not going to destroy the world again this way, But we're also going to see that there is going to be judgment that's going to come eventually, but in a different way. But he tells Noah this so that every time it starts to rain or every time it looks like uh, there's going to be a lot of rain, that they're not worried that this is going to be flooding the whole world again. And so we can have that confidence too. There have been been many small floods. There have been many local floods. But there's never been a worldwide flood like this uh, since this time. And, And there's not going to be as well. Not that we don't deserve it. Because we are a people in our society, our whole world, both near and far, that we are not putting the Lord first. We are not living for him the way that we ought to. Instead, we we love evil. We go after the wrong things. If God was to give this world justice, a lot of people want justice, but if you really wanted if we really receive the justice that we deserve from God, it's not what you would want. 
because we des- basically we deserve another flood again. But God has promised not to do this. So instead, we can worship God in gratitude for withholding his judgment. But this does not mean that God has gone soft. This does not mean that God is just uh, relinquished his, his right to uh, bring justice upon this world, but he is holding off on the judgment that we deserve for all of us and for each of us individually. Remember, the Lord said that the wages for sin is death. And that means for all of us that if you are still drawing breath here today, that God is giving you a time of reprieve that, that each of us, we do not deserve. That we deserve judgment. We deserve condemnation. And so when we realize that we're not getting what we deserve, give God praise for that. And if you have not yet embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior, as the one that takes the the final judgment for you on the cross, so that you don't have to take that judgment for yourself in hell forever, this is your window of opportunity to do this. But this window of opportunity does not last forever forever. Don't be putting this off. And I pray that the Lord would work in your heart, even this morning, to help you to realize that, yet you are not right with God without Jesus Christ. Your heart is pointed in the wrong direction. You're a sinner, like I am as well. But Jesus came to save sinners, and you can turn to him and be saved. And I implore you, do that before it is too late. May God work in your heart to give you the help that you need to come to him and embrace him as Savior. But worship God in gratitude. Don't presume upon uh, him that he is just lenient and it's always going to be like this. I think another thing to notice in verse 21 is when God says that he is not going to destroy the world again like this, it's not because the sin problem has been solved. Mankind has learned its lesson and they're, they're not going to be sinful again. Uh, the rest of the Old Testament in the Bible is going, to be, is going to testify that that is not the case. But even right here, it says, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, that we come into this world with our hearts pointed in the wrong direction. And therefore, we sin because we are already sinners. We come into this world as sinners. And so God knew that this was still going to be the case even after the flood. And so this promise is not based on the fact that mankind has now gotten their act together. This is God's grace and his mercy that he's not going to destroy the world like this again. Last thing to notice in verse 22, God promises the regularity of the seasons basically until the end of the world. Notice what it says here. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. They had just gone through about a year where things were very irregular, where there was not the normal uh, seasons, there was not the normal outworking of nature. Maybe sometimes they didn't even know what day or what season it is. Uh, there were probably things you know, thrown up into the atmosphere. Uh, it was nuts. But God was saying after this, there is going to be a regularity of the seasons, Uh, That doesn't mean there won't be weather patterns and different things that are a little bit different. Uh, But until the end, there's going to be regularity that takes place until the end of the world. And we can be thankful to God for that in his faithfulness that uh, seed time harvest, these things will continue to happen unlike the time of the flood. 
the flood was a time that was, was irregular. And that's something that we really need to take into account when we think of world history, we think of uh, geology, because a lot of uh, the estimates as far as how the world works, uh, history, things looking back, assume what is called uniformitarianism. Think of the word uniform, that things are, have been, uh, the, the processes on earth have continued basically the same now as they've always been. And so if you think of just uh, levels of erosion today, and you say, how long does it, would it take to you know, carve this trench? You know, people look at this and say, well, it would take then you know, this millions of years to carve these uh, different valleys and different things. Uh, but that assumes that things have been the standard rates this whole time. But what if there was a time period where things were very, very different? I remember a few years ago, I took my son Eric to uh, Zion National Park, and we uh, were going hiking there, and we'd have to take uh, this uh, shuttle into, into the park, because you would park and then you know, take a little bus in. And they had a recording that would go, and it would explain things about the park, and we'd talk about this valley, and it would say that it was car you know, carved by the river over millions of years. Uh, but then I noticed at one point it said that there was a time that not too long ago where there was these massive rains and the river flooded and it said that it carved out uh, this thing, it washed away the road and made a giant trench under the road. Uh, I don't remember if it said it was you know, 10 or 30 feet. I don't, it was a pretty big thing that carved out underneath the road. And I turned to Eric and said, you know, it kind of sounds like if you get enough water at the same time all quickly, uh, some of these things can happen a little bit more quickly. And so I think that's uh, <laughs> what's going on with the flood here. And so uh, we need to take that into account when we think of geology and we think of the time frames, uh, things that happened. So that's our first section. Let's get into chapter 9. And we see some more instructions that God has towards humanity, and we're going to walk through this. Uh, but I'll summarize it, that God is telling humanity that humanity is to multiply and to respect life. There's a lot of different things that are said here, but those are two of the core things. So let's read this section together. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plant, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So several things to look at here. And the first is God is commanding humanity again to be fruitful and to multiply. 
He says this twice in the section. He says in verse 1, he says it in verse 7. So it's repeated, it's emphasized. And yeah, this sounds similar to what God told Adam and Eve when they were the first two people that are on the earth. And now there are, uh, you know, eight of them, so a little bit more. But they got a lot of work to do to repopulate the earth. So he's telling them that this is what, what needs to happen. It's good to remind ourselves that the earth was made to have footprints in it. Sometimes we worry about, you know, carbon footprint and all this, and we want to be good stewards. Yes, we do. But humanity is not a scourge upon this planet. Okay, this world was made for humanity to exist. And so people are a good thing. Having children is a good thing. Having many children is a good thing. We're to populate and, and multiply upon this earth. And there's a lot of countries right now that are going to be in a lot of trouble and are realizing it because they have stopped valuing children and their birth rates are so low that there is, are a lot of problems in the future. That there are not going to be the workers that are needed to support people in their old age. Uh, that economies are going to have a lot of, a lot of trouble that are coming up. We see this a little bit in America. We're doing a little bit better than some other countries, but birth rates here are dropping. And some of the schools and institutions are feeling that already uh, because a lot of people, they're not valuing children as a gift and a blessing from the Lord. But in some places, uh, Japan, uh, places in Europe, even Italy, South Korea. In 2022, South Korea had a fertility rate of just 0.8. Now, t the replacement rate is 2.1. So that means if you have a couple, you need to have, uh, on average, 2.1 uh, children to replace ourselves. So Hope and I get married. We're not going to live on this world forever. Uh, so we need to at least have 2.1 kids, one to replace me, one to replace her. And 2.1, because they factor in there's going to be some... Uh, children that, that, that don't make it and accidents and war and different things. But you drop down to that lower rate and there's going to be a lot of problems. Just we need to remind ourselves again, humanity is uh, a good thing. We are not a virus upon this earth. God created this world for humanity. Good stewardship? Yes, we should have that. But God created this world for people. In verse 2, this is kind of interesting. Notice he says that in verse 2, the fear of man would now be in the animals. Fear, what does that mean exactly? Does this imply what was life like before that? I wonder, you know, does this mean like uh, before this, the, the whole world was like one of those Disney movies, you know, where the, the birds would come and float around you and they come and help you do your laundry and wash your dishes and the forest animals coming out? Uh, maybe not. Um, but it does seem that there was a different relationship between humanity and the animals before this. Remember, there was supposed to be, in the original creation, that Adam and Eve had dominion over the animals. Uh, so I think even before the fall, there was probably a vastly different arrangement uh, with humanity and the animals. And, you know, I don't know if that means that you know, humanity before the fall uh, could uh, you know, control them in a different way or, uh, you know, some kind of like Aquaman situation or something uh, with everything. Uh, but after the fall and to this time, it seems like things might have been different. Now, it could be as well, too, and I don't know, there's speculation here. 
Uh, Noah and his family were just on the ark with the remaining, you know, of the land animals. Uh, they didn't have to bring the fish on the ark. They didn't need that. Uh, but for the, the land animals, and remember, God brought the animals to him. And I think probably during this time, you know, they had maybe gotten used to God kind of having the animals maybe in an even more subdued, controlled, obedient state than even normal. Uh, but maybe he's letting him know, hey, it's not always going to be like this anymore. Uh, so if you really enjoyed cuddling with the lions, okay, uh, not going to be a good idea after this. Uh, that they're going to be released, things are, are going to be different. There's going to be this fear of animosity. Yeah, some animals can be uh, domesticated or trained, but um, the natural state is that the animals are going to be wild and they're going to be fearful of humanity. And part of that also is going to be that God is giving humanity animals for food. So this is also another interesting thing that we, we notice here as well. In verse 3, humanity is now permitted to eat animals. All right? And there's great rejoicing. Because animals are delicious. And we're going to the church picnic later, and I'm going to enjoy me some animals. And I'm thankful that, that God lets that happen. Um, it does seem like before this, we don't, uh, that uh, before this, this was not uh, permitted. In Genesis 1.29, God gave the plants as food, but doesn't mention animals. Now, we don't know if they were eating animals uh, before this anyways, whether they're supposed to or not. But notice what it says, that he, uh, into your hand they're delivered, verse 3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So now they're permitted uh, to eat animals. So meat's back on the menu, boys. All right. And probably when they're in the ark, you know, it's like uh, as tempting as it was to eat the animals. You know, hey, that's an endangered species, all of them. It's like, can't be doing that. But he tells them that they can eat the animals, and later on in the Mosaic Law Code, there would be regulations as far as which ones are clean and which ones they aren't supposed to eat. But what he tells them at this point is they're not supposed to eat the animals with the lifeblood in them. That the eating of the lifeblood was not permitted. Let me read those verses again. And think about what he's saying here. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So... What's this saying? I think at the very least, this is saying that they are not to eat animals live, okay? That they're to be killed first. Now, if they've been watching other animals, I mean, animals, you know, basically kill and start, you know, sometimes start eating what's still alive. This is not what we're supposed to be doing with the blood still pumping through them. But I think this is also saying uh, just to not be eating just straight out blood either. Apologies to all the vampires that are out there. Uh, but yeah, the God doesn't want that. Um, now, uh, depending how you eat your steak, I don't know what this means for you. Uh, but uh, later on in the book of Leviticus, there would be regulations that God would give. And I think this is God indicating to them that there was something special to him, something sacred about the blood of animals, the blood of well, people as well, but even animals. Later on in the book of Leviticus, uh, it would say this. Let me read. 
In Leviticus 17.10, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourns among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. They would do animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, and it would be for their atonement, for the covering of their sin. Now, these were animal sacrifices, and we know that we're going to see that there's a, a greater sacrifice that this points to, a shedding of blood by which we are saved. But in Leviticus, it goes on to say, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Let me read that again. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, either shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. If you do a word study on blood in the Bible, you will find a lot of references. I know a lot of people don't like blood. You don't like thinking about blood. People see blood. They get queasy. They faint. You're probably thinking to yourself, Pastor, you got to keep talking about blood. The Bible talks about blood a lot. And there's something about it. There's something about it that is uh, uh, just visceral to us. But think of things that the New Testament tells us. In the book of Hebrews 9.22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It points back to Leviticus, where I just read to you, that said it's by blood that atonement is made. That blood is symbolizing here life being poured out. That ultimately, it's not just the blood itself, as if some blood could be extracted, uh, but it's life being poured out. When one of my uh, boys was very young, I remember a time that uh, he, got a, he got a cut. And um, it wasn't a bad cut, but there was a little bit of blood coming out. And we're talking, and he, he was very young, and, and got really um, kind of a, this look of dread over, his, over him. And he said to me, how long until I die? I was, what? And I, as I talked to him a little bit more, I realized that he had picked up, or maybe I'd said to him that if your blood comes out, you die. And I said, oh, you're going to be okay. This is only a little bit. You would have to lose a lot of your blood for this to happen. And he was relieved and still with us today. Uh, <laughs> but I realized, you know, that uh, communicates something that is, is, is a biblical instinct, that there is life in the blood, that you lose your blood and you lose your life. When we talk about Jesus Christ shedding his blood for our sin, don't think he could have just, you know, gotten some blood drawn, okay, and that would have been good. When he talks about Jesus shedding his blood for our sin, it's a, it's a way of saying that he gave his life for our forgiveness. When he talks about we're saved by his blood, it was blood and it was a bloody thing that happened to Jesus. Uh, but it's part and parcel with him giving his life and dying on the cross for our forgiveness. And the New Testament says this over and over that it is by the blood, by the, by the death of Christ, that sinners like me and you are saved. Ephesians 1.17, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. If you're saved, it's by his grace. You didn't deserve it. You are a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're saved because he shed his blood. He died in our place. And if you trust him as your savior, that is applied to you. One more 
Revelation 5, 9, and this is this vision of heaven and the, uh, the angelic choir there, and, and they sang a new song saying to Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, you were killed, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So it's by his blood that uh, anyone and everyone is saved, not just uh, some type of people, but uh, people from every tribe, tribe, tongue, and nation. And that you too can be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ poured out his blood. He poured out his life for us. He poured out his life for you. We also see in this that God is giving capital punishment as the appropriate penalty for murder. And we see this in verses 5 and 6. That because human lives are so sacred, God declared that the death penalty is the appropriate punishment for murder. Let me read these verses again. It says, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. That means there will be punishment. There will be, this will be taken into account. There will be payment that needs to be made. From every beast, I will require it. So even if an animal, okay, they're, they're unreasoning, they're, uh, it's an animal, but if an animal kills someone, that animal needs to be put to death. And it says, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So, take a little point here to talk about, yeah, the death penalty. And I know there's different opinions, some people that are for it, some people that are against it. Uh, but what I want to tell you from Scripture is that the death penalty is the appropriate punishment for, for murder. And that this is a verse that is still applicable to us today. Now, the death penalty can be misapplied. There can be problems with it. And those things need to be addressed but there are certain cases where I think even people that oftentimes are against the death penalty will realize there's certain things that happen where they realize that this is the only appropriate response because of someone's willful disregard for other lives that they have forfeited their life. Last week, a jury found Robert Bowers eligible to face the death penalty. And even many people that would otherwise be against the death penalty realize that, you know, this guy is, what other punishment would be appropriate for him? In 2018, if you remember from the news, Robert Bowers went into the Tree of Life Synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, opened fire, and killed 11 worshipers and wounded six others. And walked into this Jewish synagogue and just started killing people. This is something he had planned in advance, he had been talking about. Uh, there's no doubt that this guy did this. And so, it's, say, this is what this guy deserves, I believe, the, the death penalty. So this is the death penalty for what we would consider first-degree murder. It's not for just accidental murder. Uh, there's other things in Scripture that will talk about this. And yeah, there can be problems. We don't want to see innocent people put to death. Um, but later on in the Mosaic Law Code, there will be uh, regulations that are given. There need to be multiple witnesses. There are times when there, there is not a doubt as far as 
who did what. And that makes, does make a difference. I believe it's to be administered by the authorities. This is not personal revenge. And yeah, there can be abuses. There can be things that, uh, that are mishandled. Uh, there are disparities, racial, economic disparities about who gets the death penalty. And that is not a cool thing that some people of races would get it more often, that some people that can't afford the, the fancy lawyers get it more often. And those things need to be addressed and those things need to be fixed. But there are, I believe, times where unless the death penalty is something that can be administered, it, it, it cheapens life. And that is what is being uh, communicated here, that it's because human life is so sacred, that because human beings are created in the image of God, that makes them so valuable that the death penalty needs to be given in order to emphasize that is how valuable human lives actually are. That a smaller punishment would cheapen this. A number of years ago in 2011, a guy named Anders Rivik, this was in Norway. Maybe you remember this. This was in Oslo, Norway. Uh, he first killed eight people in a bombing, I think eight people. And then he went to a campground uh, and stalked and gunned down, it was mostly teenagers, 69 kids that he stalked down and killed. It means he killed 77 people. Norway does not have the death penalty. Norway does not even have life in prison. Do you know what sentence this guy got? Killing 77 people, most of them teenagers. He got the maximum sentence that they allow, 21 years. 21 years. That he spends um, in a three-room prison cell with a TV. It quotes uh, an Atlantic article, says a TV, exercise room, and Ikea-style furniture. Do you do the math on that? 77 people gets 21 years. That means that for each life that he took, each life that he extinguished, uh, it comes to a little over three months that he is serving for each of those lives. Less than 100 days because of their legal system. How does that strike you? Does that seem justice? I think that... Think of how much that cheapens the lives of all those teens that were killed, all those people that were killed, to say, we appoint that you get 99 days in a luxury prison for what you did. It cheapens life to do that. So yeah, the capital punishment, it needs to be administered the right way. There can be a lot of abuses. Things, there's a lot of probably reform that needs to be had. But I think there's reason to understand that in certain cases, it is the appropriate thing because life is so valuable. And lastly, we see in verse 6, human lives are sacred because all human lives continue to bear the image of God. This shows us uh, very clearly that the image of God was not like wiped away when humanity fell. So Adam and Eve are created in the image of God with, with value and worth. And when the fall happened, it did not just erase that. That humanity continues to bear the image of God. Now, it may be changed, it may be marred, it may be effaced, but it's still the image of God. And that means each of you bear the image of God and have dignity and value and worth because of that. That means your neighbors have that. 
That means whatever person that you dislike the most is still created in the image of God and has that worth in God's eyes. That means even people in our country or in different countries that we would not value for whatever reason or think of, they're created in the image of God, dignity and value and worth. That means that anyone that, uh, no matter how young they are, if they are a baby, if they are still in the womb, created in the image of God, dignity, value, worth to be cared for and protected. That means that no matter what level of disability someone has, created in the image of God, dignity, value, and worth. At the end of life, when people say there's not much, they're not going to be able to contribute anything more, that doesn't matter because someone's value does not come from what they can contribute. Their value comes from being created in the image of God and therefore they have dignity and value and worth. And that's why because of this, we value life all the way from conception, all the way until natural death and everything in between because we believe that each person is created in the image of God with dignity and value and worth. And this should change the way we view people. Finally, at the end here, 8 through 11, God appoints the rainbow as a sign of this lasting covenant. Let's read this last part. Verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I am establishing my covenant, the sacred promise, uh, with you and your offsprings after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all the flesh be cut off from, by the waters of the flood. And never again there shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the rainbow might not have actually been a, a new thing, um, I think there's kind of, sometimes maybe you heard it said that maybe there wasn't rain until this point. I read a nice uh, kind of article on Answers in Genesis that kind of debunked that as kind of a, kind of an urban legend. Um, there was a point where there was just, there hadn't been rain yet early on, but it doesn't necessarily say that there hadn't been until this point. So there may have been rainbows, you know, before this. I mean, it's a, in one sense, it's a natural phenomenon. Uh, but from now, the rainbow would have this new function. God would use it. He's appointing it as a reminder of this covenant that he is making with the world, with humanity, and uh, with, with everyone else as well. And so when it talks about, um, we say rainbow here and we think of this, uh, the word that's actually used in, in Hebrew is just bow. 
And actually, it's the same word that is used uh, for a bow that you would use for hunting, that you would use, uh, you know, for the warriors would use, and saying that he just said, he has set his bow in the sky. And of course, we know this is referring uh, to, to the rainbow. Uh, but not necessarily, again, a new phenomenon, but now when they see this, they would remember God's promise. And of course, God would always remember this, and this would be a just a sign of this, of the promise that we've made, a visual representation of uh, this. Now, someone pointed out, and you wonder, is this speculation, is it not? But you think of the way that a rainbow is in the sky. And again, it's just the word for bow. And, and again, maybe this is speculation, but the way that it is, is pointing up. It's not pointing down at people. And could this be a reminder, too, that this covenant that God is making with humanity, this is an unconditional covenant. There are certain covenants that have conditions. If you obey me, there are blessings. If you disobey, there are curses. Like the Mosaic Law Code would be like that. But there's others that are unconditional, where God is just saying, this is on me, I'm guaranteeing this, there's nothing that you need to do, uh, this is what I am doing. You, you can believe it or not, but this is the truth. And this is a sign that God is saying, this is on me. I am not going to break this covenant. And God isn't. He's going to be faithful to this for all times. We see the rainbow, and you know the rainbow happens after it rains. And so you know that it means that, hey, God didn't flood the earth. Think of it like uh, when my kids were little, and they're scared of the thunder. I told them, you know, uh, here's how to think of it. You know, the lightning comes first and then you hear the thunder. So in a way, if you hear the thunder, it means you didn't get killed by the lightning. So you can be happy about that. All these reminders of God's faithfulness to us. This covenant is with all humanity and all life on earth. It's still in effect today. It's not like the, the Mosaic law code that gets replaced by the, by the new covenants. Okay, this is something, it said, with all flesh, humanity, but also the animals, the world, and uh, future generations, this is still in effect. So these uh, things that are given, these do apply to you and I directly today as well. And it does mean that God won't judge the world again by water. He specifies that, but it doesn't mean he won't judge again. And the fact is, we know that there is a judgment that is coming again one day. He judged the world the first time with water. He's not going to do it that way, but he specified that there is a judgment that's coming again at the end. Uh, the world will be judged by fire. The world will be destroyed. And there will be time where each of us, when we leave this world and we face the death that we have, uh, that we'll stand before God in judgment. And so I ask you, are you ready for that? Are you presuming upon God's mercy and thinking that God is just a, a God that is just all love, all mercy, and there's no judgment at all? God is rich in mercy. He is rich in love. But he is giving you this window of time for you to turn to him. He is the best thing for you. He is life. He is joy. He is happiness. And he is also your only hope to escape the judgment that is to come. Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. He came to die for you. And I pray that you embrace him while there's still opportunity. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your amazing grace, your amazing mercy, Lord God. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for, you for these promises that we can believe because you're the one that guarantees these things. And Lord, as you give us opportunity to turn to you and to repent, Lord, Lord, I pray for anyone that does not know you as Savior, that you would reach in their heart and that they would realize that although they are sinners and that's a bad thing, that you came to save sinners, Lord God, and that you shed your blood for their forgiveness, Lord. You poured out your life, Jesus, for their reconciliation, their justification to wash their sins away. May they receive you and may all of us together worship you first thing from our hearts. You are a God that deserves our worship. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.